provide value back to the ecosystem that you serve. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Before we jump into today's interview, if you guys could leave a review and a rating and also subscribe as well, that would be a huge help to the podcast. So if you actually enjoy the content and you'd like to hear more of it, please support us by leaving us a review and subscribe to the podcast as well. Thanks so much. All right, everybody. Today we have Todd Kreiselman, who's the co-founder and CEO of Media Radar. Todd, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So why don't you give us a little background on kind of who you are and, and what you do? Sure, of course. So I'm the CEO of a company called Media Radar. Media Radar is a firm that is helping ad salespeople and agency business development people who are doing sales find and identify the best prospects that they should actually go pursue. And the part that we're most known for is basically filling in the blanks, almost like Cliff Notes for ad salespeople. We help you understand what information you need to know when you're talking to a brand to pitch. Basically, it helps them figure out how to be a good partner. Got it. Wonderful. And, and where did the idea come from? The idea for Media Radar came from uh, working in the industry. So I had worked in both digital ad sales and then magazine ad sales selling print pages. This is like 15 years ago. And I noticed that there were there were just very few tools to help salespeople do their job. There was no Bloomberg terminal for media people, for ad sellers. Got it. Okay. And so how do you, I mean, how, how does the whole model work? I guess maybe a better question is how do you guys make money? Sure. So Media Radar is sold as a subscription. It's available through both an app as well as on a desktop computer. And the business model is we charge an annual subscription for an ad sales team to have access to the Media Radar platform. 100% of our business is subscription through essentially some people will call it SaaS or yep. you know, software through a subscription, that, but it's that, that business model. Got it. Okay, cool. And I, I think for, for just even me to understand better, are, are there any kind of case studies that you can speak to where you know, agency A used this and then their conversion rates jumped up by you know, 200% or something like that? Yeah, sure. Well, so I can talk, I can't give a specific name because customers really prohibit that and dislike it, but I can definitely talk about it. So as an example, almost every fashion site and magazine uses Media Radar. Almost every broadcaster in America, their ad sales team uses Media Radar. Typically, in the for the average sales rep, we will increase their sales between eight to eighteen percent in the first year. Uh, so, if someone was selling a a million dollars at a minimum, we would expect them to sell you know uh, one you know almost one point one million. We would expect that bump immediately. Got it. Okay. And when you say ad sales, what kind of advertising agencies, for example, are, are using this? I'm, I'm assuming it's not the traditional kind of you know digital marketing agency, or, or is it? So first of all, know that we're most of our business is is with actually the people selling the ads. So it's oh, got it, got it, got it. Okay. Uh, so it it could be an ad sales rep at a magazine, a website, uh, a, a broadcaster, and it can be 
it's what makes it sort of interesting is like it's across not only any media format, like digitally, it could be both programmatic as well as direct. For those who are listening, the difference is basically computer based trading of advertising versus selling advertising the good old fashioned way by phone or by 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 human. But it's for us, the business is completely agnostic to media format. Uh, we work with people selling uh, newspapers, magazines, whether it's video, all of the above benefit from the service. Got it. Okay. That makes total sense now. Okay, cool. So what are some numbers you can speak to around the business day, whether it's revenues, customers, growth rates, things like that? Sure. So we can talk in terms of number of customers. We have a little over 2,000 current customers in Media Radar. The growth rate has grown sort of fluctuates between 30 and 40% per year. And that's been the last five years that becomes, I think more, more challenging every year as we grow <laughs> because it's, it is, uh, I think it is a game of trying to figure out how to both penetrate the market better. So that means basically selling more of the existing stuff to the same customers as well as expanding into new markets and trying to add customers in adjacent and sort of adjacent markets. So it's, it's both, uh, both areas we have to grow if we're going to keep up that, that growth rate. Got it. Wonderful. And you, I think you might've mentioned earlier too. I'm, so these are probably annual deals. So the, the average customer, how much are they paying typically? You know, the median customer of media radar is around, uh, is about $25,000. It, it varies based on the, the modules that people buy. So, but on, on the median, I would say that's, that's about right. Got it. Okay. Wonderful. So I, I think in the walk, walk me through, I guess, early days. And I do want to jump back to, well, I'll, I'll jump back to this other question later, but early days, I mean, how did you go about getting, let's just say your first hundred customers or so? So the first hundred customers, we had a real strategy for thinking about uh, in the beginning. So one, we wanted the first 20 customers to be really small like not well-known companies. We, this is a B2B business. So we do not have, it's a B2B in a single vertical. So that means we, we don't have like a product that we sell horizontally to millions of clients. It's really, you know, there are about 15,000 possible customers we might ever sell to. So we wanted to choose brands that we thought were smaller that first could make a decision. So like bigger companies sometimes take a year to sign. So we were a startup, so we, we focused on people who we thought, good or bad, could give us quick feedback. And if they liked it, they could buy it and, and, and we could move on. And two, we, we thought about the first 20 uh, being smaller and mid-sized companies because we, we, we wanted to work it out, sort of work on the product and hear people's feedback before we went to some of the big conglomerates. We worried that the big conglomerates, if we, if we didn't have it all perfect, and we didn't, if we had if we had challenges with the product that we could work them out with smaller clients who would be better partners, better listeners, companies and people who wanted to be involved with an entrepreneurial venture, our experience for sure was, was, was good with that. But with bigger companies, we found that they didn't want to be guinea pigs. They wanted to be buying fully baked products. And so in the first 20 customers, we were just interested in people doing essentially you know, knowing that they were going to be guinea pigs. After that, we really started with companies that we thought the next, the next 80 after the first 20, we looked for companies that we thought could make decisions quickly. And so there were plenty of companies that we, we would have loved to have, but we thought they would spend a year to a year and a half of evaluating our media radar 
And that was too long for a startup. You, you just, you have no money. You're, you're trying to just, just make ends meet. So the beginning was really targeting customers by their likelihood to make a decision and buy quickly. And how do you determine kind of who, which companies you thought were going to move quickly versus the slow ones? So we ruled out any company that was publicly held. We ruled out any company that we thought had a procurement department, basically like a, a whole level of, uh, of review and process that we would be ill-prepared for. So we looked for companies that were privately held. We looked for companies that had more than 50 employees, but fewer than 500. Got it. Makes total sense. Okay, cool. And if I'm doing some back of the envelope math right here, so 2,000 paying customers, medium 25K, is it safe to say last year maybe you did close to or around 50 million? Yeah, that's right. Cool. Great. And then, so sounds like a lot of hand to hand combat. I ask that question all the time, and it's, it's really interesting that you got the, the kind of 21st and then the 80 next. Um, so it's always interesting the stories I hear. I'm also curious, I mean, for how you guys are going about acquiring customers today, I guess what's What's one effective thing that's working for you from a marketing perspective or even sales perspective? So from a marketing perspective, I think the playbook is has been the same for many years. The most important thing I have learned, and I didn't learn it in this job, but it was reinforced to me in this job, was provide value back to the ecosystem that you serve. Right. So we're not selling to millions of customers. We only have to be in front of 15,000, but that means we have to really be known to them, right? And not just being known doesn't mean that there, there's awareness, top of funnel awareness. You know, there, there has to be giving back to the industry. So that means uh, providing insights for free to most companies just who, who just about the quality and health of the marketplace. The media market is really confusing and complicated right now. Like lots of yep. people having lots of success, but an equal number of people really struggling. And so that means sharing information is, you know, at a, at a high level for sure. It, it means thought leadership, uh, speaking at many events, sponsoring, just spending money and being a good economic partner. So a lot of the events wouldn't take place if there weren't sponsors to host and, uh, you know, sort of pay for these events. Uh, we proudly sponsor probably 25 events per year. And a lot of that is to, to signal to the market that we know what it means to be a partner. And so from a marketing strategy, there's very little at these conferences. We don't try to sell anything. We don't get on stage and say, here's the latest version of media radar. It's really talking about what's happening in the industry, how we can be a good partner. That's the number one thing we've done as, as, as a marketing uh, process that's been effective. Got it. And, and you know, I mean, nowadays people talk about how, you know, sponsoring events can be a huge time suck because you're sitting in the booth the whole time. So it sounds like you're actually doing more than that. And then I guess, A, that, so that is the question. Does, are you doing more than just uh, having a booth? And then I'll go to my next question. So to that question, yes, uh, we, we do the booths, but uh, we do everything else too. And I would share you know, conferences and, and events are expensive and big investments generally. And I'm not sure it's the right solution for all software businesses, for example. But if you're in a very narrow vertical, right, where, you know, the population of people all know one another really well, like they, they, they look forward to these meetings, they, they're friends, they're not just competitors, being a, a thought leader and a partner, we hear it over and over is really important uh, to to why people will initially get started with us, like to take a meeting and and sort of give us consideration, put us in the consideration set. 
Right, because you're there anyway, and then the in-person always helps increase conversion rates. Yes, there's no question. Cool. And so how do you guys measure, I'm assuming you know, a conference you might spend you know, 10 grand, 30 grand, 50 grand. Uh, how do you measure the ROI of a conference? That's a great question. It's taken us all the years I've been doing this to get, <laughs> to get close to the answer. So one is collecting information everywhere on the sort of the path to becoming a customer. Right. So if I shook someone's hand and we actually talked at an event, I'll write it down. And that will later, when I get back to the main office, the marketing team who has responsibility for this will put that into a database. And it might just say, Todd shook hand. No, you know, no real, (laughs) it might just be introduction. Right. Right. But that person over a period of years might see me speak at four or five events. They might. Uh, download a white paper or uh, attend a webinar online. Uh, they might uh, come to the public website. Over time, we build profiles on people to try to help us understand how, you know, what is our relate. A lot of times you don't really know your relationship with the, you know, the level of exposure. So when, when we go to conferences, we keep track of who we're talking to and what we said and what was the degree of interest and degree of, of dialogue and, that gets filed away. I saw that on your on your site. Uh, a good pl- you had the interview with the CEO of Visible. I think tools like Visible and HubSpot and Marketo go a long way to making making it possible to tie all those data points together. Cool. So then I'm assuming it sounds like you got, you guys are getting really granular. Like Todd shook hand, for example, and then it's basically it's it's sitting in your CRM. But then over time, you're you're basically playing the long game. You know, everyone, especially a lot of people on this podcast, they th- they want things to happen. You know, long is one year, but in reality, long is we're talking over a couple years, right? It sounds like you guys are playing that long game. Yes. If if we're saying a year is long, then we're playing the long game. I would I would say like uh, we're you know we're an enterprise you know, SaaS business, uh, maybe enterprise light, but for sure we think relationships are bit built over time. I think it's very hard to force, uh, sometimes it happens, but very hard to force true, uh, a true relationship. And in many ways, I think you have to earn the right. We talk about this a lot with our sales reps. You have to earn the right to talk to someone. You can't just send marketing spam. You, you, you have to Talk to you have to show them that you know something about their business that they don't know that could be valuable to them. You have to earn the right to have an initial conversation. I totally agree with that, and I, this is something I tell my team all the time. It's like you know you're you're investing now, we're making deposits in the bank right now to be able to withdraw later. And then I just remember last week, kind of the when I was walking around at Saster, which is a SaaS conference, and you know just walking by, and then people are just like, "Oh, podcast guy," or like, "Hey, I listen to your podcast, man." I, I think that starts the touch point, and that starts a conversation down the road, and who knows what's going to happen. So I think it's really important for for people to understand. And I just keep preaching this over and over, not just on this podcast, but the other podcast, Marketing School. So I guess my next question for you is, tell me about your biggest failure. And it doesn't have to be just this company, it just could be overall. Oh God, Eric, there are so many. <laughs> so, okay. Well, in my last company, I did something that was, that in, that certainly impacted me. Uh, in, my, in my first, in my last company, which I spent 10 years of my life on at a company called The Globe, I never, I never did the job of sales. Mm. I, I was I was I was a young CEO. I was an entrepreneur. I was a product guy, essentially. Uh, You're 20 years old, right? I was a little older. I, when I started, I was probably 21, and I exited basically that when I was 30. And but I never 
I never, I never had the courage to do sales in that job. I always thought sales was for, for others who, who were, who, who specialized in it. And always, if, if we missed the number or if we released a product that was not good enough, the sales team would say, you know, you don't, you don't know. You're, you're not out there on the front lines like me. And I think that really weighed on me. I, I never, in this company at Media Radar, the whole entire time I have sold. And even as we've become a much, a much larger firm, I still spend 60% of my hours, 50 to 60% every week on selling. And so I think there is a huge value for a CEO to meet with clients, to hear what they like, to hear their concerns. I think you just, one, I think you just understand the, the market and how they perceive you and value your product. And two, I think you're, you're internally, I think you are leading the charge, right? You're not the armchair quarterback. You're, you are leading your firm into battle. And sometimes that's humbling. Uh, sometimes it's, it, you feel really wonderful when it, when it works out. But I, that was one of the, one of the biggest failures in my last company was not taking full ownership, not really putting myself out there on the front lines every day. Got it. And well, so you still, that's a, I mean, you know, in, in your early twenties that you, you took that company public, right? I did. Wow. Okay. Amazing. But it just shows that, uh, even the CEOs always have to be selling. So ABS always be selling. Um, <laughs> is there anything, any other lessons from that one? I mean, it sounds like a pretty, I mean, this sounds like a pretty visceral experience to, to be doing that for 10 years. So always be selling. Is there anything else? You know, the other thing I would say is, is is very specific, but it's an HR thing. And I, I observe that it's a challenge at a lot of companies. Um, but certainly it's been true in, in this company where I'm at now in my last couple jobs. Great employees are really easy to see and identify. Everyone knows when you got a real star, you're like, that's a star. Really bad people in a normal company get fired. And that's also pretty straightforward stuff. But where I observe there's a real challenge in a fast-growing company is getting rid of okay people. And I think it's really hard. <laughs> I think it's really, you can have someone who is maybe doing their job all right. Yeah. But I think if your culture is to grow fast, I think you have to decide if that's the culture and if that's the objective. But if it is, all through the organization, you have to be willing to make some harder decisions about essentially swapping out people who are okay, who are often, by the way, in the hardest is when they're really nice, a nice person doing their job okay, but not great in a fast growing company has to go. And you sometimes, I was listening to some of the podcasts talking about uh, Reed Hastings and the, the sort of uh, culture within uh, Netflix. And like, they've seemed like they've taken that to the extreme and really have it down. But I think it's, it's hard to do. I think, you know, the interpersonal stuff can act as, as real headwinds to keeping your, your company growing quick. But I think to grow quick, you need people who are, who can not only deliver results, but have an appetite for it. They have an appetite to see, you know, or I don't want to call them challenge junkies, but they, they really want constant growth. And it's, it's hard to interview for that, to just ask someone. It's something that I, we find you, you sort of have to observe and some people who, who start average become great. Other people start average and they just stay there. So that's the other, that's the only other thing I would say we, I, in, in some years we felt like I felt like I didn't act on that enough. Got it. So do you have any, is, is there any process or framework for weeding out the okay slash really nice people? 
<laughs> these these nice middle middle performers. Um, <laughs> so listen, uh, one I think there are a couple things, and one is during uh, periodic review periods, whether your company does quarterly or semi-annual or annual reviews. You know, to really try to get get to that question of you know how is this person pushing? And the second thing is we use a behavioral test now on on all employees called the predictive index. Uh, which was something that was introduced to us through a board director about four years ago. And that has been very, that has been very helpful. Got it. Both in terms of evaluating existing personnel, as well as evaluating personnel that you're considering to hire. Do you think it's better than the, the Myers-Briggs? Are they mutually exclusive? I think it's better than Myers-Briggs. I think Myers-Briggs is so well known and also the questions can be gamed reasonably easily. I think predictive index is so the questions are so subtle that you, the, the candidate, especially, I mean, Myers-Briggs is so well known publicly that people just know it, know it generally. But uh, predictive index, I think, is less less known, less obvious. And so a lot of the people who took the test, including myself, we just, you weren't sure after you took the test what it was going for, but it, it does end up being very, very predictive. It's fascinating. And I have, I have no, I have no economic interest in their business or anything. I just, it really has been quite transformative for us. Oh, well, you just said the word. I was going to ask how transformative, but you just said it. So uh, I'm going to check it out afterwards for sure. And we'll drop this in the show notes too. But um, as we work towards wrapping up here, just two more questions for you. Or So I guess once one new tool that you've added in the last year, that's added a lot of value to your life. So could be like a Peloton bike or it could be like Evernote. <laughs> it's not Peloton. I'm nearly so healthy. So it's. I would say it's. Uh, it's not a new tool. I would just simply say, it's a really good decision to constantly upgrade upgrade your, your laptop and your computer. This is something that we really believe here. We basically replace everything every two years for everyone. Mm. It's just that there is the pace of business is so voracious and so fast now that it costs something to, re, like, to have downtime. And so I, I would say as, a, as one thing that I've really embraced over the last couple of years, even with for me personally, is just really all the things that I do in my life – it's like, I, I, like, I'll give you an example. Like I bought a new phone when the new Apple iPhone came out. I'm not an Apple fanboy. I absolutely don't care about any of the, any of the whiz bang, any, any of the new cool things. I don't. But what I don't want to spend any time on is worrying about the battery life of my phone. Right. And even, even if it's Apple's fault, I literally, I do not want to spend time on it. And so I will upgrade the phone purely because I know that the newest phone does not have problems and I can begrudge them for this. And I do not think it's fair and I agree with all the consumer reaction to it. But as a business person, I'm evaluated on whether I'm delivering faster growth at Media Radar, and I don't want to spend four hours on a weekend worrying about my phone battery. Right. Makes total sense. Cool. Final question for you. What's one must-read book you'd recommend to everyone? So first book that comes to mind for me is a, is a book from 15 years ago. It was written by uh, I'll email it to you right afterward, but it's it's one of the founders of Sony who wrote a great sort of history of Sony. And I think one of the things that I most took away from it and still think about is how for in any company, there's a nucleus of people, people who really drive the whole boat forward. And when you're with these people like Media Radar, I've been doing this a dozen years and there's, you know, over a dozen years, there's probably 25 people who've been here for most of those years who never left and you're going through life together, right? You're, these are people who probably, you know, like me is a good example. I was not married when we started. I got married. I now have a dog, two children. 
like the whole thing. And in those years, a company, if you want to have fantastic talent, you have to treat those people well. And I don't just mean economically, you have to work around the fact that they're going through these life changes and that some periods of time they will operate at peak efficiency and other times they may not. And while I think in general, there's no point in having a huge amount of flexibility for a larger workforce. I do think when you're talking about the, the real people who drive all so much value, that book really, I thought for me, put it in very personal terms of the level they went through sometimes to get the best people. And it, and it sometimes was just so, uh, just so personal in terms of the way they recruited people. Anyways, that, that's my favorite book. And I get, there are probably a whole bunch of books. It's about 15 years ago. I'll send you the exact name uh, after, after I'm off the phone. Todd, well, this has been fantastic. What's the best way for people to find you online? Best way to find me is very simple. It's just Todd, T-O-D-D, at MediaRadar.com. Love it. Todd, thanks so much for doing this. All right, Eric. Be well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember to take action and continue growing.